Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 233 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So happy 2024, Matthew. Happy 24. I'm glad that we started this year, uh, you know, and um, I've been missing the podcast the last couple of weeks. I know. You've been uh, MIA, so to speak. So it's nice to have you back for the first episode of the new year. It was tough going through my content this week uh, to come up with the things I was going to speak about. So I think the things I selected will be very timely for our listeners. Nice. Well, very good. Um, As always, we uh, will review performance of the major indices that we track for listeners. However, Uh, slightly different uh, this week. We are just going to review the 2023 calendar year performance of those major market indices. And this data is from YCharts and as of December 29th, 2023. For 2023, S&P 500 up 24.23%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 13.7%. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 43.42%. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 15.09%. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up 11.97%. Three-month Treasury rate at 5.48%. The two-year Treasury rate at 4.33%. The 10-year Treasury rate at 3.91%. So, uh, Matt, as we've mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, if you went to bed on January 1st of 2023, woke up on the 29th of December 2023, you'd say, oh, it was pretty smooth sailing for the markets, right? Yep. But far from uh, it. yeah, for all of us that were awake during that time, it was it was definitely far from it. Uh, interesting to note, though, the. Um, the 10 year treasury pretty much ended the year where it started. So for that, you know, the meteoric rise in rates that everybody was concerned about, um, really no longer an issue because we're right back where we started, uh, to begin last year. You know, well said, Uh, one thing I want to throw out there to our listeners and viewers is the bond market caused a lot of volatility and carnage in, in 2023. And what I mean by that more specifically is the drastic movements that you're seeing in these yields is extremely abnormal when you look at history. Mm-hmm. So normally you don't see these drastic movements. An example would be the 10-year moved a total 100 basis points or 1% in like six weeks. Not normal. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with rates this year. I have a little piece on this uh, here uh, coming up just in a few moments. Look forward to it. Um, But just a couple of big headlines. Uh, The market has sold off to start 2024. I know we only had a couple of trading days so far this year, but uh, giving back some gains made in December so far. 
And the biggie for me, Matt, is unfortunately the Santa Claus rally. That is the last five days of the trading year in 2023, plus the first two trading days uh, of the year in 2024. Um they were uh, negative for the S&P 500, which is not what we wanted to see. And I'll touch a little bit more on this later. But um, if people want to figure out what the Santa Claus rally is, we've done several podcasts on that uh, before. So go ahead and check out some of those other uh, those other episodes. I discussed it in detail last week in episode 232. Um, but uh, I will get to that here in just a bit. I also have uh, my last piece for listeners and viewers has to do with what's going on starting off this year. So you have to hang on and you'll get my two cents on that near the end of the podcast. Okay. Uh, First thing I had was a tweet from Arun Chopra on December 27th. Uh, And he says, when you hear everyone saying the same thing, don't overthink it too much. Just sort of close your eyes, your ears and look for an entry on the other side. And Jenna will put this chart up on the YouTube page and in our show notes. And what you're going to see is it's a chart of the 10-year treasury yield, the two-year treasury yield, and then the Google search for the amount of times higher for longer was searched. And what you're going to see is the peak searches were at pretty much the highest point of the 10 year yield and the two year yield before they started a a precipitous fall uh, in October. So I just thought that this was uh, funny. You know, we talk about contrarian trading a lot on, on this podcast, and this is a perfect example of, uh, you know, everyone's this higher for longer and it's like got to a certain point. It's like, okay, it seems like everyone's on the same page here. And of course, uh, rates fell after that. I knew things were getting out of control when, um, about roughly two and a half, three months ago, there was a, uh, an anchor on a financial news network that was literally calling him personally was calling for a double digit 10 year rate within like two years. And I was like, uh, I mean, if that happened, you would have complete decimation of the economy. It would be right. horrible. Right. So. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, a lot can change between now and the end of the year. But uh, like I said uh, before, we're really back to where we started 2023 in the 10-year yield. So, Great item to um, point out. Second thing I had was a blog post from Joe Wiggins on the Behavioral Investment blog on December 12th of 2023, and it was titled, How Will Equity Markets Perform in 2024? And uh, I know on this show, my big shtick, Matt, is how I hate people forecasting and making market predictions. And I think this is the best article yet that I've read about uh, market predictions, why they happen, why they're detrimental. So I'm excited to share snippets of this with, with listeners here. Um, so, uh, Joe starts off the blog post, uh, saying it's that time again, when investment professionals make predictions about how equity markets will perform over the coming 12 months, the only purpose of which seems to be allowing us to look back in a year's time and comment on how pointless such endeavors are. Although it can be viewed as a harmless diversion, the pervasive culture of forecasting the unforecastable perpetuates damaging investment behavior. Well said there. When setting expectations for equity markets for the year ahead, it's important to understand what is being done. 
Equity returns have three drivers, changes in valuation, dividend payments, and earnings growth. When we forecast the year in equity markets, it is largely an exercise in anticipating changes in sentiment. In essence, we're asking how will other investors react to future events, which is quite tricky. If we are attempting to forecast equity market performance in 2024, we need to do three things. First, identify known issues or developments that will influence investor sentiment in 2024 and accurately predict them. For example, we would need to know both that the both the Fed action and how they will behave. Number two, identify unknown issues that will influence investor sentiment in 2024 and correctly forecast them. This is, by definition, impossible. Foresee how markets will react to these known unknowns and unknown unknowns. We don't need to just get the events right, but the market's reaction to them. Given the improbability of meeting this challenge, why do so many people do it? First thing is it's expected. Unfortunately, the most pervasive or excuse me, persuasive reason is that short termism is an unshakable industry standard. I've worked in the investment markets for 20 years. And when people ask me about what I expect the market to do uh, the next year, I feel embarrassed saying I have no idea, even though it should be more embarrassing offering a confident forecast. Second thing is it's their job. For many people, it's simply their job to produce such forecasts, whether they believe it that it has value or not. Number three, they believe it. Some people believe there is merit in such forecasts, which I can only put down to overconfidence. Number four, it's fun. Predicting short-term equity market performance is enjoyable and engaging. People want to keep doing the things that are interesting and might keep them doing them, even if it destroys value over the long run. The truth is most people owning equities should be doing so to capture long run returns by investing in a collection of companies generating a rising stream of real cash flows through time. Attempts to predict how the market might be pricing those cash flows over any given year is entirely fruitless and counterproductive. The more we see these types of predictions, the more people think that equity markets are somehow stable rather than noisy and that investing is about making short run estimates of impossibly complex things. There you go. Um, yeah, I know that was a lot, but I, that last sentence really stuck with me. Me too. Um, that, you know, if these things keep going on, the more people think that equity markets are somehow stable rather than noisy, which is just completely the opposite of markets. If you want stable returns, the stock market is not for you. Period. End of story. The market doesn't owe you anything. Doesn't owe Matt anything. Doesn't owe me anything. Doesn't owe anybody anything. Um, and I think people get that misconstrued in their head that just because the market's done X return over so many number of years that that's owed to them, right? And that's just it's not how it works. Yeah, I mean, in addition, we just got to remember that's why the longer term rates of return are so attractive, right? There's no free lunch. And so if you want that beautiful, hey, that five-year average, a 10-year average, a 15-year average, there's a sacrifice you have to make for that. And guess what it is a lot of times? Holding strong through periods that are very uncomfortable to do so. That's the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So um going to be very disappointed if uh, Jenna doesn't name this podcast, uh, The Market Owes You Nothing. So just throwing that out there, Jenna. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Item number three I had, Matt, uh, was a tweet from Jeff Hirsch on December 21st, and this is talking about the Santa Claus rally. Um, so he tweeted, if Santa Claus should fail to call, bears may come to Broad and Wall, devised by Yale Hirsch in 1972. And like I said before, the Santa Claus rally is the last five trading days of the year, plus the first two trading days of the new year. Jenna will throw this chart up for the YouTube viewers and on our show notes. But what it does, this chart, is it shows the Santa Claus rally for the S&P 500 since 1950, all of the negative years um, for this seven-day trading period. So uh, since 1950, there have only been 15 years where the Santa Claus rally has been negative. And it shows the next year's performance after a negative Santa Claus rally period. And the thing I want to highlight to listeners here is that over these 15 periods, there's been nine bear markets um, that have occurred in this 15-year period. Um, however, on the flip side of that, the average return after a negative Santa Claus rally period has been 5%, um, and there have been 10 up years and five down years after a negative Santa Claus rally period. So I don't want to scare people into saying, oh my gosh, 2024 is shot, because that's not the case at all. Like look at 1991, for example, negative Santa Claus rally period. The next year was up 26% for the S&P 500. So um, it's more of a caution saying, hey, there's been a decent amount of bear markets when this tends to happen. But even if we have a bear market, Matt, it doesn't mean like me and you both know that we can't recover. It might be a buying point sometime halfway through the year. If we go into a bear market, it might be a buying opportunity and the year can end up positive for the year. So I don't want people to take this as all things are, are lost, but I think it's just one of those pieces of data that perk our ears up because when the Santa Claus rally period is positive, the returns for the next year tend to be much stronger. And that's the thing that I wanted to to get across to to listeners. So um, what are your thoughts? You know, my initial reaction to this is there's a lot of noise, I think, for last year. And it should be a data point. I'm not here to completely ignore it. Uh, but I have some thoughts on this that I'm going to uh, I'll share with our viewers and listeners here in a little bit. So I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. OK, well, I'll turn it over to you then. All right. So. Um, what I want to highlight first is pullbacks are going to happen here in 2024. These things are normal. Okay. So this first piece is from Ryan Dietrich. He posted this on January 2nd. Uh, this will be up on, uh, on YouTube for our individuals watching the podcast on video. Uh, this will be in our show notes for those listening on traditional podcast formats. What it is, Mark, is it is a chart that goes back all the way to 1980, so four decades. And what it does is it shows the return of the S&P 500. And then what's really great about this is it shows the maximum pullback during the calendar year. Now, when you started off the podcast, 
you made the comment about, hey, these are the returns for 2023. And if you went to sleep and woke up at the end of the year, you probably thought it was an easy, enjoyable year. And you and I both know that is far from the truth. The reason I want to highlight this chart, okay, is at the beginning of this year. Each time we get a 10% correction, all the bears and individuals calling for doom and gloom are going to come out of the woodwork. We have to remember, for the most part, the market shoots first and asks questions later. 2022 is a prime example of this. A lot of individuals panicked, sold stocks in 2022 because there were calls for a bad recession in 2023 that never happened. Some bought stocks back at higher prices in 2023, and I think there's still a lot that haven't bought back yet into normal stock or equity allocations. They've let bold calls for doom and gloom derail their long-term investment plans. We have to remember it is time in the market, not timing the market, that makes the biggest impact over time. I don't guarantee a lot of things, Mark. You know this. I guarantee at least one point this year, probably multiple, that there will be calls for dramatic doom and gloom. Could they be right? Of course they could. My recommendation, watch the data. Watch the economic data. Watch data from companies when they report their quarterly earnings. What is the C-suite saying about the economy and their industry? Watch the charts. Mark, your comments. Yeah, I really like this chart because it just goes to show you, you know, even though you go through uh, a pullback, a correction, a bear market, there's been years where the market has still done really well, even in the face of a double digit correction. So back in 2003, the maximum pullback was a little over 14%. Market ended up being up almost 30% that year. Uh, again, in 2009, market was pulled pulled back uh, almost 28% and ended up being up the year about 25%. Then obviously most recently 2020 market pulled back 34% and ended up the year about 16 17%. So just because there are pullbacks doesn't mean we can't rally back and finish the year in the positive, right? That's um, right. And look at so, the average pullback, 14.2% for the last four decades. That's the yeah. average intra-year pullback. Yeah. So, Not abnormal. This no. is going to happen in 2024. I'm going to reference the first podcast of the year. Yeah. I talked yeah. about this. All right. My next thing. Interesting stat from 2023 that caught my eye. This is a post by Callie Cox. Uh, she is a... Um, a market analyst um, at eToro. It was fun. I was on um, uh, a trip with my family between Christmas and New Year's. Of course, I had Bloomberg on and unmute the entire time in one of the rooms. I walked by and she was uh, getting interviewed uh, for Bloomberg for her kind of thoughts on the market. She yeah. had an interesting chart here. It says a weird looking bull. It shows, Mark, the percentage of stocks in a given calendar year that underperformed the S&P 500 index as a whole. And Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners and all of our social media sites. What you're going to notice by this chart very quickly, Mark, is that over two thirds, 71% to be exact, of stocks underperform the S&P 500 index 
itself. Okay, now this is the most going back to the year 2000. So why am I highlighting this? I'm highlighting this because I feel you will see broader participation, i.e. more market breadth, which I'm going to have you explain here in a second, in 2024 compared to a majority of 2023. We started to see more broad market breadth, i.e. participation in stocks in the fourth quarter of last year. My two cents, I think that trend for the most part continues into 2024. You have some expertise in this area. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting. And when we talk about market breadth, it's the you know the amount of stocks that are participating in a certain move, you know, to the upside or downside. We could have positive breadth, we could have negative breadth. Um, you know, and what this chart is showing is that you know there was only 29% of stocks that were in the S&P 500 that outperformed the S&P 500 this year, which is the most since 2000, right? So. Um, I don't want to say I'm surprised by this because if you think about it, it really makes sense. So you have some of the biggest names in the stock market, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Nvidia. Let's just pause there for a second. In my opinion, or at least everybody I know, everybody uses Apple. They have an iPhone, they have AirPods, they have an iPad. Amazon, most people have Amazon memberships or Prime memberships. And if anyone's like my household, the Prime truck is there several times a week. Um, Microsoft, most people use all of the Microsoft products, Outlook, Excel, OneNote, PowerPoint. They have kids, all that Xbox. Stuff. So if you really stop to think about how much these companies are involved in our everyday lives, it really should kind of make a lot of sense that they're some of the largest companies in the S&P 500 and that they have the largest impact and that they've grown to that because they're they're so ingrained in our everyday life, right? Um, so it's not surprising to me. I don't, you know, obviously I'd like to see more stocks participating to the upside, but if it's a handful of stocks that are driving most of the returns, um, it's like, okay, that's, you know, whatever. I don't think it's a, a negative thing or a positive thing. It just is what it is sometimes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting just that high of a, you know, lack of market breadth. Again, yeah. started to play out differently in the fourth quarter of last year, but interesting to put a specific stat behind it, I would say, right? Yeah. So my last thing before we transition to the financial planning topic of the week is my thoughts on the beginning of the year so far. Okay. So you've had um, two down days in the market, right? To start the year off. I want to be very direct. I feel what you are seeing so far is the beginning, obviously, of a new year, a new quarter. And in my opinion, this is just rebalancing by large institutions. And when I say rebalancing by large institutions, I'm talking pension funds, endowments. Let's face it, you know, stocks did good last year. They did really good in the fourth quarter. It is very normal for institutions to rebalance, not only at the beginning of quarters, but specifically at the beginning of a new year. This doesn't surprise me at all. Personal opinion, I'm not getting too concerned about it. 
but I think it's just rebalancing. Will you take a second for our newer listeners and viewers and just explain the concept of rebalancing, Mark? Yeah. So, you know, during the year, if you start out, let's just take it very simplistically. Let's say you have, you know, an S&P 500 ETF and a, uh, you know, corporate bond ETF. Okay. And uh, a very normal allocation for people that have a moderate risk is 60% stock and 40% bonds. And you start off January 1 in that allocation. Well, depending on how stocks and bonds perform, more likely than not, by the end of the year, you're not going to be still in that 60% stock, 40% bond allocation. Because if stocks outperform or if stocks have a 20% up year, bonds have a 10% down year, for example, stocks are going to be more than 60% of your portfolio at the end of the year, right? Correct. Um, so you take this and you drill it down more based on an individual sector level and individual, um, you know, equity level, certain managers, mutual fund managers, uh, more precisely have to adhere to certain equity allocations. So they have to have certain allocations to certain sectors, um, or certain industries, for example. And when they start a new year, they need to get uh, their money back in line with their investment policy statement uh, or their certain sectors that they need to have exposure to or asset classes that they need to have exposure to. Um, and that's really what rebalancing is, rebalancing to the target allocation of uh, an investor's risk profile. Yeah, they might still like stocks, but their allocation to it is X. Stocks did really good in the fourth quarter, so they're going to you know, get that back in line. And I think that's the selling pressure you're seeing to kind of start off the year. My two yeah. cents. Yeah. Now, one last thing. JC Peretz had a post on January 1st that I think is pertinent right now. Okay. Reason why is you're starting to see the doom and gloomers come out and say, oh, the movement in the market, the fourth quarter is a head fake. 2024 is going to be just like 2008. I have seen these posts specifically over the last couple of weeks. And J.C. Peretz attacks it, and I love how he does it. So someone posted this. Um, they said, we're literally watching 2008 play out. And they had like this list of reasons, Mark. It was rates manipulated too low for too long. Speculative asset mania. Prices only go up. Rates rise, dot, dot, dot. This is what J.C. Peretz responded with. In 2008, you weren't just coming out of a bear market. We were five, six years into an exhausted bull market. In 08, the S&P 500, NASDAQ, and Dow weren't making new all-time highs. In 08, had massive breath deterioration preceding it. Today's broadening upside participation? So no, this isn't that. Now, I'm not sitting here guaranteeing we're not going to have an 08. We're not going to have a bad market this year. But I'm agreeing with J.C. Peretz that the underlying data to me doesn't pass the smell test. I manage money through that time period. In my opinion, it's not relational, and I want to throw it out there. Yeah, I agree. You know, the most uh, the most bullish thing that you know stocks can do is is make new all time highs, and we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, we're I think we're very much due for a breather because sure we've had nine consecutive weeks of positive returns, but. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's got, it has to be a collapse, right? Exactly. So um, 
before we let you go, Mark, and we bring on uh, Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week, my friend, any uh, final comments? No, I don't think so. Um, it's kind of hard to believe uh, earnings season is just around the corner here. So um, knocking uh, financials yeah. are first in a couple weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks, week and a half, two weeks ish. I think uh, you'll have all the major banks start reporting. So again, might see volatility pick up a little bit going into earnings season just because of the earnings reports and earnings calls tend to uh, move stocks um, during during their uh, earnings season. So. Other than that, no. Uh, hopefully, uh, we get um, you know our shake out and get over it here, and the the second half of uh, January can can be strong. Well said, my friend. All right, we'll transition. We'll see you next week, Mark. Okay, thank you. So we're going to transition to the financial planning topic of the week. Uh, Taylor Ledbetter, she's a wealth advisor uh, with our firm Jessup Wealth Management. Uh, she is an expert on the financial planning area of our practice. Uh, Taylor, welcome on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you this morning? Doing good. So how was the end of the new year uh, in 2023? Did you get some rest uh, during the holiday season? Yeah, I feel very well rested, a lot better, a lot more relaxed. It was good. Good. I feel like um, we were all kind of sprinting through 2023 the entire year. So it was nice to take a breather at the end of the year. I kind of feel the same way. Mm-hmm, so um, what do you have for our listeners and viewers this week, Taylor? Yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about an article that I found on Smart Asset. And it was um, labeled how to manage your money after you retire. Ooh, this would be a good topic, especially at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. So it first starts off by saying retirement is a pivotal turning point that triggers significant financial changes. The steady paycheck you've grown accustomed to will be substituted by income from various different sources including retirement accounts, social security, and other investments. Managing these different streams of income in retirement is critical to maintaining a comfortable lifestyle, and it goes into a step-by-step guide on really what you need to look at and how to manage everything effectively. Okay. So the first step this article talks about is estimating your expenses and creating a budget. And I do think this really is the first step before you really focus on retirement accounts or the other income sources, because this is going to determine really how much you have to save. Yep, that's well said. And one thing I see a lot of retirees boots on the ground is they'll kind of develop an initial budget and the whole theory is, well, I'm going to give myself, you know, a cost of living adjustment or a raise every year. And even though you might mm-hmm. get that from some of your fixed income sources like Social Security or a pension, what I see mm-hmm. boots on the ground is a lot of retirees don't take more from their investment accounts for several years. And they tend to kind of raise it once their portfolio maybe has increased in value or they had a good period in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know that we've said this in meetings before, but. If there's maybe you are retired and the market is up a decent amount that year, maybe that's the year you take a little bit extra income from your retirement accounts for like home renovations or a car repair, maybe doing some extra traveling. Yep. 
Um, but yeah, I think looking at your current expenses now, you know, pre-retirement, kind of using that as a baseline and then estimating what changes might happen. So, you know, will your mortgage be paid off by then? Um, do you plan to travel more? Hopefully your kids or financial dependents are out of the house. So then you just kind of modify your current budget and that gives you a, a good forecast. On a side note, my wife and I are joking right now, Taylor, that um, we need better start making life at the Jessup household a little harder as our kids get older. Otherwise, <laughs> they're never going to leave this house. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to leave either. Yeah. Um, any comments on that first step before I move on to the second one? No, I think you explained that perfectly. Good job, Taylor. All right, perfect. So the next step the article talks about is assessing your different sources of income. So I'm going to name off the most common ones that most people will have in some kind of way. And then just really the factors that you need to focus on within each income source. So the first one is going to be retirement accounts, which most people should have at least one or two. So again, that's just going to be your 401ks, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, any account you have through your employer, basically. Yep. So one thing you really need to look at is how these accounts are going to be taxed, because obviously a Roth account is taxed completely different than a 401k would be. And generally speaking, this isn't necessarily true for everybody, but I feel like it's true a lot of the time. Um, we always say try to withdraw money from Roth assets last because that gives the account a lot more time to grow completely tax free. And what ties into that as well is if you do have a pre-tax asset like a traditional IRA or a 401k, you also have required minimum distributions for RMDs on those accounts. Correct. So if you take from those assets first, by the time you turn 73, the RMD will probably be a little bit lower because you've been pulling income already. But if it was vice versa and you were taking Roth assets first and the pre-tax second, your RMD is going to be a lot larger. Your Roth account is probably going to be a lot smaller and it gives you less room to really manipulate your tax bracket in retirement. Well articulated. Mm -hmm. um, and the last comment regarding the retirement accounts is our little, we call it a 5% rule. Yep. So we assume that your accounts are going to grow at about 7% every year, which is very conservative. And we subtract 2% for inflation. And that's how we get to 5%. So, you know, say your retirement accounts had around a million dollars. We feel comfortable with somebody taking about 50 grand a year. Correct. So we want to make sure you don't dig into principal and the account just continues to grow as you take money. Yep. All right, and the second income source is gonna be social security, which again, 
most people probably fall into this category. And there's a few different factors you really need to consider um, when you're trying to pick the filing age. I think one big factor is going to be family health history, because if you don't have the best family health history, you probably shouldn't wait until you're 69, 70 years old to file. That's right. Um, Another one is obviously going to be retirement age. Um, I think a lot of people, they assume if I'm retiring at 65, that's when I'm going to file. And you don't have to do that. Um, Sometimes it makes sense to push it off a couple of years, depending what other income sources you have coming in. Yeah, because you're going to get that growth on it, right? Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, other income sources, that was another factor you kind of have to look at. Um, You know, maybe your goal is to leave as much money to the next generation as possible. And maybe, you know, your social security benefits really increase a decent amount for every year you push that back. Um, So sometimes we'll see people retire at 65 and live off accounts for a year or two and take that larger social security benefit and then let their accounts just grow and they might not even need income for that. I see one thing, Taylor, you could do for our listeners and they could reach out to you for this calculation. You can run the math on what I call break even analysis. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is going off of your example of age 65 taking SSI compared to age 67, you can run the numbers and say, okay, if you live past X age and I'm gonna fictitiously pick one, 77, Mm -hmm. then you're in a better financial situation if you waited those two years to take Social Security. So you can Mm -hmm. put some math behind those decisions. Is that a good way of saying it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think, the deciding factor for that, again, goes back to your family health history, too. Yeah, Yeah, we got to take that into account. Yeah, when you get that break-even age, that's kind of what you have to look at next. Well said. Um, All right, so the third income source the article talks about is pensions and annuities. So I'm going to kind of lump that all in together. And when I think about pensions and annuities, it makes me think of people, you know, working for the state, um, teachers, school districts, things like that. So when somebody retires from a school, for example, um, typically they have an option to receive either a monthly pension or take a lump sum and maybe move that over to another investment account and keep it invested. So again, this is all individualistic, um, but in my opinion, you know, if the monthly pension amount is pretty small, it might just make sense to take the lump sum and roll it over, keep it invested, Um, I mean, you have to look at the other account size, what it's invested in. You know, there's multiple factors, but that's kind of my two cents on that. Yeah, and then you can easily run the calculation of, hey, if I take this lump sum, how much does this uh, lump sum need to perform in order for me to equal the same amount of income that I'd be getting from the pension? I mean, those those numbers that that they can be run. And one thing that's interesting is I've noticed um, as 
interest rates have arisen the last couple of years, Taylor, that break-even calculations on those pensions have gone up. Why? Pension funds are invested with a very long-term time horizon. They're going to lock in some of those longer-term bond rates. I think what you'll see happen is if the Fed does, in fact, start to lower rates the next several years, the break-even numbers, the return you have to make on the lump sum will start to go down again the next several years. We'll see if I'm right. That's my speculation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was a great point to bring up. Um, like you said, it all depends on that potential growth and really the monthly benefit amount. Those are the two, you know, couple most important things, I think. Sure, sure. Um, something else, if you do go the the pension route rather than the lump sum route, there's different types of pension payout options you need to choose from. Yes. I'm not going to go through all the payout options, but I'm going to highlight a couple that I think are the most popular. Mm-hmm. So one is normally called a single life annuity. That's when you receive fairly high monthly payments. It's actually the highest of all the different payout options. And those monthly payments last for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody might do this um, if maybe they haven't saved enough personally for retirement. Um, obviously, people who receive pensions normally don't receive Social Security. Um, you know, maybe you're not married, so you don't have another income source from a spouse. Whereas there's also a payout option called a joint life annuity. Um, These monthly payments are normally a lot lower, but if you're married, they cover both spouses' life. So even if it was your pension and you pass first, your spouse will still be covered by some monthly amount. Yeah, in a lot of states, I think that if someone is married and takes the SLA or the single life annuity, that significant other has to sign off on that. That has to be notarized. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they have to be aware that, okay, my spouse has taken a single life annuity when he or she is no longer with us. I know I'm not going to get anything. You know, that's that's definitely a risk that is is disclosed, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I believe once you choose the option, you can't go back and change your mind. Because um, I've definitely talked to a few people who chose the single life option and they wish they would have done the joint they just it just didn't cross their mind that's right they weren't educated on the decision they saw the highest mm-hmm. amount they're like oh sla i want that higher amount and just didn't yeah didn't run the, all the scenarios per se right right yeah yep all right so the next income source um we just have a couple more left is going to be just cash savings and emergency funds um i don't necessarily look at this as an income source In retirement, I could see people maybe who want to retire before that 59 and a half age to avoid that penalty. Maybe they have a lot in their savings and they just want to get to that penalty free age. Mm -hmm. Then I can see somebody living off cash savings. But for the most part, we really don't see people who live off of that. Correct. And then the last income source is just talks about other investments. So when I think about other investments, I think about brokerage accounts. Um, and specifically, there's a big tax advantage with brokerage accounts. So I would loop 
I would loop that in with the retirement accounts we talked about earlier, but it's not quite a retirement account. All right, and then lastly, this article talks a little bit about balancing income versus growth in the account. So it goes on to say the golden rule of retirement is to strike a balance between income and growth to your investment portfolio. Conven conventional wisdom dictates that your asset allocation should generally be more heavily weighted in stocks the farther you are from retirement and skew more towards bonds and cash as retirement approaches and ultimately arrives. And I do agree with that, but I also disagree with that a little bit. Um, I think, you know, if you are withdrawing money every month, you do need to keep up with that withdrawal rate to some extent. So you can't afford to be too conservative, but I don't think you should be 100% stock either. Yeah, my initial reaction to this, Taylor, and uh, one of the areas that I tend to be more critical on are these things that are called target date funds or lifestyle funds. What mm -hmm. I see a lot in retirement plans is a lot of investors aren't educated in these areas. They see these list of investment options are like, I don't know what this stuff is. Oh, look, here's a one size fits all fund that has the year that I'm going to retire. I'll select that. Mm -hmm. My criticism is this. The average target date fund, the year that it shows, when you get to that year, what I see boots on the ground is stock exposure that's somewhere between 20 to 30 percent. I haven't seen it over 30. Usually it's around mm -hmm. 25. Okay. Here's the issue for an individual that's taking a withdrawal rate. Let's say they're taking a 5% withdrawal rate. If you run the academia numbers, that's historically not going to be enough stock exposure to make your money last the rest of your lifetime. That's the critical part. And so I'm building upon exactly what your criticism was to what was said is that you got to strike that balance. And mm -hmm. one thing I'm very proud about that what we've done for clients the last couple of years is we've done our hardest to keep them on track with all of the distractions and the headlines and the bad market performance of 2022. Remember, it's time in the market, not timing the market. And we got to make sure that we are keeping that, that equity exposure so we can keep up with that purchasing power, the withdrawal rate, et cetera. Good way of saying mm -hmm. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I know we've talked about this before too, is sometimes the worst years in the market do have some of the best trading days, but a lot of times people have already sold out because they get nervous yes. and they miss those best trading days. Excellent point. Excellent point, mm -hmm. Taylor. Yeah, I just thought this was a really interesting article and it brought up a lot of different factors that you really need to think about. I know it was kind of a lot to go through, yeah. um, but I thought it had some really good information. It was awesome. It was awesome. But before we uh, sign off and I get your final feedback here in a second, 
just want to remind our viewers, uh, if you want to create your own podcast, use the promo code Jessup Wealth. That's all lowercase one word, Jessup Wealth, to get your first month of uh, Booberry podcasting hosting for free. To choose the ideal plan for you, use the hosting estimator on their website. Again, you can receive your first month with promo code Jessup Wealth, all lower cases, no spaces. Um, and that is spelled that service B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. So before we sign off uh, from episode 233, Taylor, any final comments or thoughts? Um, just that I'm happy that we ended 2023 really strong. Um, mm -hmm. have a lot coming up this year between the election and what the Fed will do with interest rates and inflation. So just excited to see what happens this year. I'll just finish and kind of mimic Mark a little bit. Got earnings season beginning in two weeks. Bulk of companies will report at the end of January. You got a Fed meeting at the end of January. So uh, a lot of data is going to be hitting this market uh, very shortly. So if you see some kind of crazy volatility in a day or two, there's probably some good reasoning behind it. So thank you for listening to episode 233 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Myself, Taylor, Mark, Jenna, uh, we thank you and we'll be back next week for episode 234. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.